Welcome back from the DMV. Oh man, my favorite place. I am finally in that like flow of life where I can do all my DMV things online. Oh really? Yeah. I wish so we had like, that. my uh, well, I guess my situation's different, but like my I turned thirty, you know, and so in like Tennessee, license you have to get a new one at thirty, and I caught it early enough to where I could just do it online. Oh, and cool. Then, uh, I got vehicle registration notice in the mail and I already did it online. So nice. I don't have to like go stand in line. And do you guys have safety and emissions inspections and stuff? We don't not. I don't yeah. think Tennessee has it at all. I know Shelby County doesn't where I'm at. So we used to mm, fun. Yeah. I have been going back and forth because I, uh, well, I drove to Atlanta and bought a classic Mini Cooper and one of those teeny tiny ones. And then I can like re- register it as a historic car, which is cool, mm. which is also strange because it's a 1992 and that's considered historic, <laughs> which is hilarious. But uh, yeah, I, I like, you know, have to go back and forth. They have electronic titles and stuff. And, you know, we don't have that. I have to mail in stuff to the other side of the state just to get plates for this thing. And I'm like, Jesus. Do you get the plates cheaper because it's historic? Yeah. Well, so you pay one time and that's it. You never have to Uh, like re-register them every year or two or anything. So, but yeah, I should, uh, you reminded me about my driver's license. Uh, I should check and see when that expires because I also turned 30 like a few days before you, right? Yeah. Yeah. I just got, I just got mine renewed and then I read an article that, I can't fly out of the Memphis airport in like starting oh, the end of next year, unless my ID has the, its like uh-huh. special logo or something. The real ID. Yeah. I, which I need to go in and yeah. Cause you're going to either have to have that or a passport to travel inside the U S which is uh, kind of annoying. So I already do pre-check like, what yeah, which you want from me? yeah, I don't know if that helps or not, but yeah, it's a mess. So anyways, um, free startup idea. If anyone wants to fix the DMV <laughs> in Missouri, you got it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that's a really we'll easy re- task to pick up. Replace the government and with a, a startup. <laughs> I think that'll be fine. <laughs> I think it's worked for a lot of other people. <laughs> Today anyway. we are joined by Chris Arcand. Did I pronounce it right? Yeah. Yes. Welcome. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Chris and I met at RailsConf year before last, I believe, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think that's right. Sounds it sounds somewhere along the lines of that. Uh, Chris, do you mind just maybe giving a quick introduction? Just tell sure. us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, yeah, my name is Chris Arcand. Uh, I'm a senior engineer at HashiCorp, uh, where I work on the Terraform team. Uh, specifically I work on Terraform cloud and Sentinel, uh, Terraform clouds, a service that kind of integrates with the Terraform command line tool, uh, that open source tool that a lot of people use. And, uh, it adds a whole bunch of features on top of it. And then Sentinel is our policy as code framework for HashiCorp enterprise products. Uh, I'm originally from the Minneapolis, St. Paul metro area in Minnesota. Uh, and after some time out East, uh, on the East coast, I live once again in the twin cities. Uh, I love it here. And I work remotely full time. I've been doing it for quite a while uh, for several different companies, and I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Having you in Minneapolis for RailsConf was a fantastic treat because we pretty much used the guides you made to like get around Minneapolis uh, for everything. It was yes. awesome. 
That's great. No, that's super good to hear. That was, uh, was a little project that uh, we pitched at the, I, I organized the the Ruby meetup here in Minneapolis and uh, we had a bunch of different people chipping in on that and and building it. So I'm hoping it's like this, this tradition thing that kind of just continues on because I love being able to visit new cities and having like locals say like, you know, these are good spots. These are bad spots. Go for the food here, et cetera. So man, Nashville, Nashville, Ruby Conf. It's up to you guys. And gals. Yeah. The problem is I don't know anything about Nashville. I like, I put a conference on there, but I don't live there. So I like, yeah, I know, I know some people I can punt that too, though, that would like eat that stuff up. They love, they come, they help out a ton with my conference. Mm-hmm. So they would love to do that. Uh, also pronounce the name of your company, please. It's HashiCorp. See, I always call it HashiCorp because I'm, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people say HashiCorp. I think, I, yeah, it doesn't matter. Mitchell doesn't get mad if you call it HashiCorp, I don't think. Your I don't know, actually. Sounds way better. <laughs> so uh, you mentioned that you work remotely. Before we kind of dig into that, which we'll be talking a lot about today, kind of how did you end up as a programmer doing that full-time? Yeah, so I feel like a lot of people have these stories of like, oh, I, as a kid at like four years old, I started programming on an Apple II or, or whatever. Mine is not like that. Uh, I actually just found it to be a good job. So I, I started off as an orchestral clarinetist. I used to be an orchestral musician. That was my big thing growing up. Uh, I love playing classical music and I went to school at, at the University of Minnesota uh, studying, uh, you know, all four years doing music performance. Uh, and at the end of it, you know, I started taking auditions for, for orchestras, uh, and realized that, you know, it's not just about how good you are, but also how, you know, lucky you are and how much you're willing to, you know, go work in orchestra kind of in the middle of nowhere, getting paid very, very low amounts of money for a long time (laughs) before you can kind of establish yourself. And I kind of just hit this point where I realized that, you know, there's more to life than just playing the clarinet. So uh, hmm. I kind of grew up toying uh, with computers just a little bit because my uh, dad was in IT, uh, as was my brother. Uh, so we just kind of, you know, screwed around with them a little bit and, and you know, played lots of video games and stuff like that. But uh, it wasn't until, you know, the end of a bachelor's degree in music that I thought, man, maybe programming would be fun. So I got into that and then stayed in school for additional years. So I have two bachelor degrees, which, man, I do not recommend that <laughs> at all. That is, that's <laughs> twice as many as I have. Now, <laughs> it's not that's a whole separate conversation to have another day. But uh, I, <laughs> eh, I mean, it was it was cool. I don't regret it by any means. But at the same time, eh, I maybe would have done it a little differently. What uh, languages did you start with? So um, when, so I was working, so the reason why I thought of maybe trying out programming or whatever is because while I was going to school doing music, uh, my day job was basically doing like IT, fixing people's personal computers and like occasionally hacking around on uh, basically WordPress sites uh, is what the small, small company that I worked for uh, did. So that was what I did as a day job. Uh, So PHP, I guess, would be my first you know, official language or whatever. But when I got into school, uh, you get, usually get started off on scheme, which is like a, a flavor of lisp, uh, which is kind of fun. Uh, and then usually go out to like Python and, you know, all the typical things. 
Yeah, that scheme would have been fun. We did a little bit of Haskell in my um, bachelor's, and that was really fun. I, my favorite was our assembly stuff, which I wouldn't want to do for a day job, but it sure was fun back then when you were like, how does all this stuff work? Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, I got thrown into a Java program, and it was like, that's all we did. Of course, it, it progressed like as the program went along, but I didn't make it that far. So all I like pretty much had in school was Java and then learning Ruby on the side. And that was like two very different experiences. Mm-hmm. It caused a lot of problems for me mentally. But we have lost Chris due to Wi-Fi connectivity. So, uh, well, Chris Oliver, that is. So you and I will just continue off. That's okay with you. And hopefully yeah. he'll join back in. Yeah. So this is actually the first time on the show we've really kind of actually dug into kind of remote work, which is somewhat ironic, <laughs> but the the podcast got its name because it was a remote Ruby meetup and then became a branded podcast off that. And then we killed the meetup. So here mm-hmm. we are. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's dig into talking about remote work. And so you go to school you graduate, you become a programmer. How do you transition into working remotely? Yeah, so uh, I was working at a mid-sized startup uh, in Minneapolis. I was there for about one and a half years before uh, my wife got accepted to go to grad school for medicine uh, out in Washington, D.C., which is a long way from here. Uh, it was a really awesome opportunity for her, so we definitely were going to move. Uh, but I really enjoyed my job at the time, and uh, the company was kind enough to keep me on as one of the few remote workers in the company. Uh, so really, I started working remote full-time out of necessity. Uh, and when I was getting into it, it's not like I had this expectation of like being a, a long-time remote worker by any means. Uh, my wife and I had a strong sense that we wouldn't be permanently settling in the DC area or anything. And I always sort of figured I just go remote for a few years. And then once I've settled somewhere else, uh, go back into an office. Um, and yeah, I assume you're still remote. I am still remote. It's been several, <laughs> several years and I am, I am still remote happily. Uh, yeah. When I, uh, when I was out East, uh, I was getting a little more involved in the, the Ruby ecosystem. And I noted there was a, a Ruby conference in New York city happening that summer. Uh, it was Goruko, uh, which, by the way, was a really fabulous single track conference that I miss very much. Uh, and the keynote speaker there was this this guy named Aaron Patterson. And uh, besides him, the whole lineup of speakers looked really great. I know that uh, Eileen Uchitel and uh, Nate Berkepec have been some of the guests on your show in the past, I think. Uh, anyway, uh, New York is uh, a short and cheap bus ride away from D.C. So I attended the conference and there I met Aaron and some of his coworkers from Red Hat uh, where he was working at the time who told me that they were hiring. So needless to say, it was a really exciting opportunity to go work at Red Hat, uh, running Ruby. And, uh, you know, I nerded out pretty hard thinking, Hey, I get to go work at the company that made the Red Hat Linux CD boxes I used to toy with when I was little. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that Red Hat, you know, I got the sense that, yep, I'm now becoming one of those people that is perfectly happy, never really walking into an office again. Hmm. So, what was kind of that transition like for you? Yeah. Um, you know, the first year out East was super, super difficult. Uh, I was a brand, I was in a brand new city, uh, where I didn't really know anyone. 
And uh, I didn't live in DC proper, actually. I lived in Northern Virginia across the river. And I didn't live in a super walkable place. So I basically just stayed inside uh, at home, you know, 90% of the time for the first six to eight months while I was there, which I really don't recommend. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to balance my work time at all. So I burned out pretty hard and it took me a, a solid year to really adjust and kind of understand what I needed to feel balanced as a person when you kind of lose that social aspect of, of going into an office. Yeah. I had a, I had kind of a weird transition into remote work because I actually worked for the company here in town mm-hmm. and it was by the time I left like 120 person operation and it was where only like only the four or five programmers like could work remote. Everybody else had to like go in and like fulfill orders and things like that. Mm-hmm. But like there was no reason for really us to be there. So like I worked five minutes from the office, like I live five minutes from the office. So I work there, but I only went in one day a week and it is kind of like, it's kind of amazing. The adjustment, even seeing people like once a week was like a kind of radical thing for me. Yeah. So what are some of the things uh, you like most about working remotely? I think, uh, you know, most people can sort of imagine the, the really obvious positives like, hey, you don't have to commute and, uh, you know, you can work in whatever environment you really want, whether that's a home office customized for you or whatever. You know, you can wear your pajamas to work. No one's looking over your shoulder, all that sort of stuff. Um, for me, it's the freedom and flexibility of my time and the ability to be able to do a lot of deep work in a condensed amount of time to be able to experience the rest of life in a way that's you know, much more challenging if you're blocking off sections of your day commuting to an office. Now, you know, what do I mean by that? All that gibberish. Uh, first off, the deep work and condensing of work time is the most straightforward. You know, the commute to my office now is is pretty nice. The traffic is always light. When I'm done having coffee and breakfast with my family in the morning, I have to walk about 30 feet across the house to my office. It's that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, This definitely varies from person to person, but most people I know who work in tech in an office, whether they live uh, out in the city or the burbs or whatever, spend like 20 to 40 minutes commuting one way. And along with a trip back home, that's a lot of time you could use in other ways outside of work context, you know? Don't forget the time you have to spend at the DMV. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) I'm back. Um, Yeah, I... 100% agree with that. I used to go into the office even, you know, 15 or 20 minutes away and you got to go drive there, park, you have to get gas and all this stuff. And like even mentally, like you have to, part of it's kind of nice because you have a little bit of a transition every day Mm -hmm. to wind up to work and wind down from work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a little less separation there, but also like, if you wake up and you're thinking about a problem or whatever, you can just dive in, you know? And if you like need to leave in the middle of the day for a little bit, working remotely is like totally fine for that a lot of times. So I I think it makes things like generally like just allows you to do your deep work when you need to, or when you're, when you're capable of doing it rather than trying to force it into certain hours when you're at the office. Mm -hmm. That's actually kind of put me into a rut recently because I got to where I was like waking up, like ready to go. And so like, I literally just like get out of bed and go work uh, instead of like, kind of like waking up. And so now it just has become a routine and I'm trying to like break out of it and like wake up and have some time to uh, 
become part of the day. And yeah. And I also have a problem with like breaking away. So like I start real early and then I just sit at my desk all day. That's like some of, it's some of the, I guess the challenge for me, uh, because I don't really have it. Like no one's micromanaging me. Mm-hmm. And also nobody's like going to lunch, like getting up and going to lunch. So I'm just like in my own little zone for a while. Yeah. As we talk, you know, you don't have any physical cues, you know, there's a, as we talk about this, uh, there's a talk that I have to have to plug for sure. Uh, at RailsConf uh, in Minneapolis just a couple months ago, uh, there's this talk that uh, Marla Zasheen did from Test Double. Uh, it's Things I Wish I Knew Before Going Remote. Uh, it was a really great talk. I totally recommend uh, to anyone who's getting started with remote work. And she talks about like physical cues and how you don't have those once you start working remotely full-time and that's kind of exactly what you're what you just indicated yourself is just like you know no one's getting up to go to lunch so like i don't know that i'm supposed to take a break and stuff like that and it takes a really long time to kind of get used to creating those sorts of uh habits and reminders for yourself you know oh yeah that uh i I still do this all the time but like there's so many days where i look up and it's like 2 p.m and i'm like i probably should have had lunch by now yeah and then and then i also feel it at that point where i'm like i feel exhausted and then i realize like i didn't ever take a break to go like do something and and so there's like part of that it's really great because i can be in the zone for as long as possible and then there's other parts of that where like sometimes i do that too long and I should have stopped earlier. So yeah, I think it definitely comes down to like, you know, building up some of those habits and, and stuff. Um, but for me, just not having any interruptions, like allows me to just get in the zone and work for longer, which I don't really care when I eat lunch. I just want to make sure that I'm, you know, being productive. So it it helps me do that a huge amount. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about kind of like how it was transitioning and some of the things you've liked, and we've started to kind of touch on, you know, some of the challenges. Do you have any other challenges you find working remote? Um, yeah. So yeah, I think that a lot of people run into kind of an issue with like, you know, finding themselves stuck in their house for, days on end, never leaving their house and like not having any sort of social life and feeling like they haven't actually socialized with another human being in eons. Um, and I think that, you know, feeling connected with your coworkers on the job is different, kind of sort of a different conversation, but I will say that working remotely for so long has kind of shifted my thinking about where I kind of get my social interactions from. Like when you're in an office, you interact with people in person so much that it becomes, you know, kind of an integral part of your social life. And, you know, once that's immediately stripped away it's really hard at first to kind of adjust to but i found that it makes you kind of focus or at least makes me focus ever more on those relationships with like family and non-work related friends and there's this possibility for even better work-life balance if you know what i mean yeah no that makes sense yeah and it's not it's not like i'm saying uh, you know none of my coworkers are are my friends no fun socializing happens at work you know i love i love the camaraderie on my team it's just that now that i feel like i've you know structured my life in more of a balance between work and like what the rest of life has to offer so like you know i love the ability you know i I have a two-year-old and uh, if i was at an office all day long i would just not see them from the second i left to the second i got back home um my wife uh as i mentioned she works in medicine and she 
does not have like structured hours. She doesn't even have like a schedule where it's like three weeks of schedule and then it resets. It literally is just like planned in advance, you know, not randomly, but like it is different every single week. Uh, so for our childcare, we have like a, uh, in-house, uh, nanny who's great. And so like, if I'm working from home one day, you know, I can take like two minutes to go out and see my son, like basically whenever I want, uh, which is something that is really, really, uh, enriching and well worth the, you know, down points that I guess you would get out of remote work as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. The other day, like it's summertime. And so my kids go outside with my wife a lot to like swim and stuff uh, in their little kiddie pool. And like, he'll be like, he'll ask for me, my oldest one. And my wife's like, hey, he wants to see you. And it's like, okay. And I just walk outside and like get to watch him have fun in the pool for a couple minutes and go back to work. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. One other thing that you just kind of mentioned, uh, uh, mentioned was, and we'll touch on it more a little bit later, but kind of like feeling distant from your team. Uh, or finding new ways to connect. And in our last episode, we were talking with a buddy of mine who is real big into chatbots. And one of the things he mentioned was like kind of the camaraderie around like building like silly chatbots and Slack and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And how like it helps connect you to like teams that are remote. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a bunch of different kind of uh, techniques that, you know, we use at HashiCorp. And I know a lot of other companies use on distributed teams for kind of feeling like you're, you know, still in an office or like the social aspect of it. One of them is, yeah, the like, uh, you know, bots like like donut chats. You've heard of like donut before? It's like uh-uh. this. Yeah. All right. So, so donut is this, and there are other ones like it, but donut is this like Slack integration that you can uh, have uh, where it basically, you, you join this room and it randomly pairs you with someone else in the room for like a 30 minute slot. So you can like sit and chat with them over coffee or donuts. It's called donut. Cause you're supposed to have like a donut chat, whatever. Um, so you basically just get like paired to just kind of take 30 minutes to talk with a, uh, uh, new or old coworker, uh, and just talk about whatever, like, don't talk about work, talk about like, you know, anything you possibly want. And I think that's actually been really nice. Like I've done that. I've done that quite a bit. Highly recommend it. If you, if you do that. That's cool. I've not heard of that, but I will actually be looking more into that. Yeah, that one's neat. The other thing, go ahead. No, 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 please go ahead. You know, with like, you know, Slack uh, socializing and stuff uh, or chat socializing, uh, you know, I think it's also important for companies to like have lots of spaces where if you're on a remote team, uh, it's not just about work all the time, you know, like on the, on our company Slack, you know, we have lots of, of different rooms, you know, we have like team-based rooms where this is where the team hangs out and, uh, you know, this is where a project is being done or whatever, but there's a whole bunch of other like prefix rooms of like, you know, talk food, talk, uh, home improvements and hockey and keyboards and, you know whatever really pets stuff like that um having those sorts of spaces where you can you know congregate within your company towards like common interesting topics that aren't work related is actually really nice as well yeah that's actually a really good kind of transition into kind of talking more about remote teams uh and so what do you think like when you think of a successful remote team i think the two things that really make remote teams successful, the first one would be like trust, right? 
you have to have a huge amount of trust in your coworkers for a team to be successful. You know, you no longer have people uh, looking over your shoulder and like keeping you motivated to stay at your desk, though. Really, I hope that is not a environment, even if you do work in office. But the point is, there's no there's zero like social pressure or anything like that. You can, you know, you have all this freedom and temptations to go do whatever you want. So a team should be able to trust one another that they're all genuinely concentrated and all working towards a common goal, uh, even if you aren't, you know, working at the same time and at the same location anymore, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the second the second thing I would say is like communication, like communication has to be has to be really, really, really good as well. Um, you'll find I think that a lot of. uh you know, successful remote teams have lots of written asynchronous communication. Uh, and you see that in like, you know, Slack, uh, though that's debatably not asynchronous. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but you see that in other things as well. So like at HashiCorp, we have, uh, we do everything in RFCs, uh, request for comments. So basically these documents that, you know, if, if you need to add a feature or change something at the company or basically anything, uh, you know, you would write out this templated document that kind of, uh, writes things down and records it in such a way that everyone will have the same clear picture of what you're trying to convey, no matter when or where they, they read it in the future. That's really cool because that's something I kind of struggle with is I'll have an idea about something and I'll want some like feedback on it. And the really only place for me to do that right now is like drop it in Slack and then if something else like more interesting for lack of a better term comes along, like that all gets lost mm -hmm. in the noise. Do you have any kind of like specific software, like systems in place for those RFCs? No, we, we use uh, drive or Google docs. Uh, so it has its ups and downs. Uh, there's this really neat feature that we use quite a bit that I did not know about before I started working in HashiCorp and that is uh, cloud search. So basically when you have, you know, when you have a Google account for the company, uh, and whatnot, uh, you can go to this URL, which is basically Google search, except for all of your, you know, documents and calendar appointments, basically everything Google. Uh, so it's easy to find stuff with that sort of though. I wish there were still yet a, a better way to kind of organize things beyond just like the directory structure that Google docs kind of gives you. Yeah, that makes sense. We we use Dropbox Paper a lot. It's uh, yeah, they, all these document management things have their ups and downs. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. Um, HashiCorp is a pretty large operation. How does the geography of like your team look, or maybe like a geography of the whole company, and how does that impact working remotely? Sure. So HashiCorp. I, I would call it midsize still like it. So it was, I joined, it's like 270 or something like that. And now we're over 500. We've like doubled in size over the last year uh, and are, you know, growing like mad beyond, but we're still relatively small sort of, uh, sure. but we are distributed kind of all over the place. Uh, I kind of do remote work on hard mode in the sense that uh, my direct engineering manager is in Sydney, Australia, <laughs> as is Whoa. my product manager. So, and then uh, a good portion of my team is actually out on the West Coast, uh, distributed all along the West Coast. Uh, so we we are very much not overlapped uh, at all. Uh, 
and yeah, I think I think geography definitely does play a role in how remote work happens at a company. It's not just like you know, uh, you know, it, I I think that successful teams would like if one person is remote, you're all remote is a good way of of kind of uh, making everyone successful in a remote environment, but. Uh, the overlap in, with time zones and whatnot definitely plays a factor where like if your entire team is remote, but you're all in the United States or something like that, then you can reasonably expect that like people are kind of sort of keeping uh, normal business hours kind of or, you know, they'll see it in some, you know, uh, see some update that you have or something in some uh uh, small amount of time. But if you have someone that's working like across the world, then obviously like, Hey, if, if you send this email or whatever to them, you can expect that it's going to be at least another, you know, day before you hear back or anything like that. Wow. Yeah. That, that seems like it presents a set of challenges. It does a little bit. I mean, it's, you know, if you really do need to have that in meeting time, uh, you know, you start to see patterns with different people for like how meetings are kind of done. So like, for example, being in central time, if I, you know, need some face-to-face time, uh, with my manager, for example, it's, I know that it's going to be three 30 PM or later local time in central time, uh, because he's getting up, uh, rather early, uh, out in Australia to be able to do that. Does that, um, like in some ways help you quite a bit because you have to stop and think before you interrupt some, you know, other coworker, like, you know, in an office or even, you know, just pinging someone on Slack when you're like trying to think through something. I would imagine that it kind of forces you to stop and be like, well, you can either interrupt him right now and you're mm-hmm. like, you have to like think about that versus, you know, if you're all in the same time zone, you never do. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I feel like that's a big positive of remote work in general, regardless of where you're geographically located, is the sense that because there's so so much importance on like written communication, uh, I feel like a lot of people do better writing very like writing something very concisely instead of, uh, you know, the temptation just to kind of interrupt someone in an office where you only have an idea kind of half baked. Uh, which isn't necessarily bad either. Like it's good to be able to, to, to convey half-baked ideas if you're trying to, trying to brainstorm and stuff like that. But for the most part, it kind of forces you to kind of formalize and organize your thoughts a little bit before you go using someone's time. That's a struggle I kind of have is I don't because everything's so asynchronous, uh, kind of where I'm at, I'm sometimes like, putting words out into Slack before I've even really thought them through. That's tough. Mm-hmm. But then they, then they get lost in Slack forever. So it's no big deal, right? You're never going to, you're never <laughs> going to find them again. You, you mentioned earlier about Slack being a terrible spot for like historical stuff. I cannot agree more. Like it's a black it's hole. It's awful. It's because <laughs> like, and then like you get going on a thread uh, and then that thread is also lost like way up there. So yeah, it has its, it has its purposes, but I am, I pretty much mute like every channel at work. Uh-huh. So sorry for any of my coworkers listening. <laughs> uh, another thing that we can kind of talk about in terms of remote work, um, on like hiring, onboarding people, things like that. So when, 
like interviewing candidates, do you think there's a way to like, do you think there's, I guess, uh, an additional element of like, you also need to see how well they like work independently, work remotely, things like that. Yeah. I, I feel that interviewing even remote, even without the remote aspect of it is always an interesting topic because in our industry, there's so many examples of really terrible experiences that people have. But ultimately though, I, I just feel like, uh, how it should be is actually pretty similar to what you do in an in-office setting. It's really just a question of the tools you use to communicate with, uh, given that you're not in the same, you know, physical location, you know? Yeah. Do do people that you guys hire tend to have worked remotely before or um, do you see a lot of new people? I think it's a pretty good mix, really. I, you know, I, I, there are people that definitely have done it a very, very long time, but I've also know many, many coworkers that, uh, you know, this is kind of their, their first foray into it. Um, I guess I, you know, I'm making this up. This isn't a good statistic, but I'm going to say 60, 40 of people that like definitely have done remote work before to those that haven't. I like it. Yeah. Uh, so this is a question that is quite relevant to um, me because I have a friend who is a junior developer and he went through a boot camp and was really lucky to find a job like in Memphis doing Ruby. It's very rare. And so I'm curious, do you think there's a lot of opportunity for junior developers to work remotely? And also, um, do you think junior developers can thrive in a remote environment? Absolutely. hundred percent. Like I, I know that that's kind of a thing that the industry as a whole has sadly kind of, uh, dropped the ball on as far as like, you know, oh, it's remote. So we can't have a junior developer because we can't, what they're saying between the lines is can't effectively micromanage them is what it comes down to. It's kind of like what I was talking about earlier about like trust, right? I mean, a trust, uh, the sort of trusting relationship, you can still have that at a junior level. You know, you can still trust that a, a junior is, is learning and, and, you know, advancing and doing great work. Um, you know, it might take, uh, more mentoring time, right? Uh, from some of the more senior uh, developers to to help that person along, but again, it's it's more of the tooling and the processes that you have as a company around remote work, and not just that they're in the different geographic location. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's something I I wish we could see more of is junior devs in remote roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um. I had a question for you though, you know, what, so have you, you two are both remote then? Yes. Gotcha. Uh, and what, go ahead. I, I work by myself, so I don't really cool. probably count as remote, but I have in the past. Have you, have you like interviewed? I'm curious like uh, about like interviewing at remote companies and whatnot and sort of like, mm-hmm sort of like, uh, uh, techniques that, uh, people use. Cause you know, I've interviewed at several of them before and I've seen a lot of different ways. Uh, and I know a lot of ways that, you know, you shouldn't interview, but I'm curious to see like <laughs> some of the success stories that, uh, you might have. Yeah. So before I took this job, 
I was on the hunt for a remote role, except for one wasn't remote. And a lot of it was, I don't know that it was that different, really, the ones I went through than like just an on-site. Because a lot of it was like an initial screening call, just like make sure like both parties were interested. And uh, the the thing from there that I guess that was makes it different is that a lot of the people I interviewed with were in like Europe. Uh, so I would have to, I would need to get up at like five or 6 AM to be uh, able to meet with them to not like overlap with the job I was working. Yeah. So that was an interesting part of it, but I didn't, I don't know of really any techniques that were that different that I noticed. Um, I can, I can tell you, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I can can tell you about some techniques that you probably shouldn't do in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Let's hear (laughs) these. So, uh, let's see. I had one, uh, when I was living in DC where I did a few calls and a take home project, uh, that took uh, a couple hours and I'd send it back and they, you know, they look it over and decide if I should continue. And I did. Uh, and then they flew me out to San Francisco for an entire panel of like in-office interviews. And at the end of the day, kind of called me into the office and said that they absolutely loved me as a potential coworker, but didn't think I had the exact experience, uh, with their stack that they were looking for in that particular position. Uh, which was like, man, that was a lot of effort, uh, flying you all the way across the country to kind of do that. (laughs) And in my opinion, it was pretty terrible. I'm glad I didn't end up there because I realized that flying me all the way out there to evaluate me, uh, is sort of an admission that remote work is secondary to in-person time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that a lot of people might disagree with me on this, but I think it's actually sort of absurd that you'd absolutely need to meet someone in person to evaluate them, uh, as part of a distributed team. just seems kind of weird to me. Yeah, that's really fascinating because none of my remote interviews did I have to fly anywhere. They were all mm-hmm. meet with people and mm-hmm. and like use tools to like do live coding like together remotely. Mm-hmm. The the only job I actually had to fly out for was the one that wasn't going to be remote. Mm-hmm. And then a similar situation, like they flew me all the way out there, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Well, surely like we've done this, like right. this is going to happen." And then it was like is we need a little more experience. And I was like, right. Okay. This ended a lot differently than I thought it would. Yeah. It's like, it's like you probably should have like evaluated the technique part of it before I even came out. Like if you're, if you're really bringing me all the way here, then like, it seems like unless there's a major red flag that like you surely couldn't have seen before, then we're getting pretty close to the end here, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, any more techniques that (laughs) techniques that you shouldn't do yes yeah so this one i this one i feel actually pretty passionate about now that i that i've uh been talking i've been i've been did a lot of talking with people like RailsConf about it and stuff like that um i'll just tell you here so uh another interview i did i did well in some conversational panels and then I was given a take-home project that was uh, adding a bunch of features to an application. And you'd complete some number of the features given the seniority of the role you're interviewing for. And the, the catch is that it's time limited to two hours exactly. You would get cut off from being able to submit anything in exactly 120 minutes. Now, the reason it's time limited is actually pretty good. You know, not everyone has unlimited amounts of time to spend crafting the absolute perfect submission, right? Some people have family that they, that depend on them. Uh, some people have lives outside of work, you know, 
So the addition of a strict time limit makes sense because it even it kind of evens the field for people in different situations. Now, all that seems fine at first. Uh, and up until very recently, if you had asked me what I thought about, you know, implementing features in a take-home project, I would have told you, you know, this is the best idea. This is, this is a great way to interview. Um, I don't think that at all anymore. And the reason is because people's brains, especially when doing something uh, like programming are weird. So let me ask you, you to a question. Um, have you ever been absolutely stumped on something for hours and you really need to just get it done? So you, you know, hammer away at it and you get absolutely nowhere and then you're forced to call it a night. And then the next morning you show up at your computer and you have it solved within like five minutes. Oh yeah. All the time. Uh-huh. All yeah. the time. Lit- My entire week this uh-huh. week. <laughs> yep. I hear that you hear this from people all the time and experience it yourself all the time. Uh, that's exactly what happened to me in that interview. And after realizing that it happens all the time and hearing uh, that it happens to other great engineers in their work, um, I think that while there's a good reason to add a time limit to coding challenges, they also make it impossible to really know for sure if someone is experienced or they just had a moment during the interview where their brain didn't allow them to solve it. And I think that like part of being a good experienced engineer is knowing when you need to walk away from a problem and understand that you can't always force a solution right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's kind of the same thing with like my complaint about whiteboard interviews. It's like, well, you know, you, you need to be in the right mindset and you're probably nervous in, in an interview like that anyways. So trying to solve problems, you know, with, within the whiteboard context is just really hard. And the same thing goes for your time limits, especially when you're like, you know, there's basically a gun to your head for 120 minutes and you're like, all right, solve these problems. You're like, Mm -hmm. when do you work like that? Never. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be a good measurement of, you know, your skills. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a bunch of other bad interviewing techniques, but I suppose, you know, we should talk about some good ones too. (laughs) I think, (laughs) I think a, a common denominator in good interviews, uh, that I've experienced so far is always having a conversational aspect to them, regardless of their focus. Uh, so like at HashiCorp right now, for example, we do like a, a main panel of interviews, uh, two of which are like purely conversational. Uh, and the others are a coding pairing session and a code review session. And the two code related ones, though, are also very conversational in nature, right? It's about how a person approaches a problem and not and you know how they think and not if they actually solve it completely or not you know so you're always like talking through the problem and like conversing back and forth and not just being like solve this problem oh you couldn't solve it so you failed that's actually so now that you say that that's a technique that at podia they kind of implemented so like my get through the door kind of project uh was two like different set of requirements and just like a like using like pseudo code, how would you approach this problem? Mm-hmm. And that was awesome because like I was able to put a lot more time into like the thought of how I would do it too, versus like purely like the syntax syntax and technique. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that is actually a really good uh, technique that actually I've been a part of. Mm-hmm. Any other good tips? Um. Yeah, the, I think the code review one that I mentioned is is becoming my favorite way to interview people. Um, so, in a, like a, a in a code review one, like you'd have like a pull request on GitHub or something, uh, where you would show 
the the interviewee would would get like access to this pull request and it would be uh, on some bit of code, some code change. It'd be a pull request, right? And the task would be for the interviewee to review the pull request. And I really like that because I feel like it has, uh, uh, it touches a lot of different areas. Like in in a technical sense, like you you would make a pull request that has like intentional mistakes in it or whatever. Uh, some 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 mistake that hopefully you know this person would be able to show their experience and uh, catching that that mistake. But also, not only that, but uh, how does this person communicate back? How does this person like what is what are the interpersonal uh, you know what is their communication style like in how they respond back to the the pull request uh, opener? Mm-hmm. You know. So. Yeah, that's really good because I mean that is when you're programming remotely. That is a lot of like a lot of my time is spent in PRs. Mm-hmm. Exactly, I, a that's lot of good. everyone's every developer's time is spent reading code and reviewing code, interacting with coworkers. It's actually kind of a you know people that aren't in uh, the industry would expect that like oh we're just sitting like clacking away at code all day long, and it's the exact opposite. I mean, a very small percentage of the day is is actually like writing out code compared to the amount of time we spend reading other people's code and and talking about it and interacting with coworkers about it. That's really good. Yeah. Uh, before I uh, start to wrap up, do you have uh, any other remote-related topics or anything like that you wanted to get into? Or um, I think, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, what's your what's your best advice for, you know, getting started with working remotely, how to kind of stay sane. And we've talked a little bit about that, but I think for me, the biggest thing is making time for things outside of work, um, which sounds obvious. Like you hear about it when you uh, are, you know, looking this sort of stuff up, but like, I can't stress the importance of like finding something that you enjoy outside of work. And if you're at all like me, it's something that is very dissimilar to what you do all day long. So for example, you know, I've talked about how I was in music, right? Uh, you know, with orchestral music, you spend so much time alone in a practice room practicing, right? Um, what does that sound like? Well, that sounds a lot like what I do now all day long in uh, a remote working sense. I mean, I go out and co-work at coffee shops or whatever, but for the most part, like I'm in my office, like, by myself, uh, working. So I actually found that the reason why I didn't like, uh, music so much anymore is like a passion is that it was too similar to what I do on the job all the time where I'm just by myself quietly working on something. Uh, mm-hmm. so I actually got, I actually just randomly started playing ice hockey. Like hockey is a big thing here in Minnesota. Uh, I didn't play growing up at all. Like I'm not some prodigy or anything. I actually suck pretty badly, but you know, I enjoy it. It's fun. Uh, and I do that a lot. I do that like twice a week with some uh, other engineering buddies uh, and whatnot. Uh, and I like it so much because it's something that's completely dissimilar. Like I'm, I'm, I'm moving, I'm playing sports. I'm not just, you know, quietly in a room. Uh, and that has made me feel like really balanced and like happier when I actually am working. That's awesome. I would... That sounds like a fun hobby. I would never like in the South think <laughs> to do that, but <laughs> yeah, it might, might be different. I mean, what do you, what other things do you like doing? Uh, 
I program. Yeah. No, <laughs> that's I'm fine. Programming. And that, and that's the thing. And that's the thing that, you know, that's me, right? Like I like, like being outside and like backpacking and like hockey and stuff like that, because it's so different from what I do all the time. But like, that is not for everybody. Like I know so many people that are happy, like balancing themselves out. Like they reach that balance for themselves by still programming, just programming whatever they want to do instead of, instead of work. And that is also great too. Whatever, whatever makes you feel balanced as a person is just identifying that is what's the important part. This has been great. Where, uh, any links you want to share where people can find you on the interweb? I am on the Twitters, uh, at Chris Arcand. Uh, I also have a site with all my other bits of contact information, uh, and posts and whatnot. If you're looking to learn a little bit more about me, it's uh, chrisarcand.com. Uh, no, that's pretty much it. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Chris, are you, did you make it back? I'm back. Yeah. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for being on here. This was a lot of fun. Um, I think, uh, you know, for, for someone who I kind of always wanted to work remotely, it was always like a hard thing to, to try and transition into. So I think these are really good, you know, topics to dive into. So thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me.